Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. I'm Corin Zalkis, the author of the memoir Smashed, Story of a Drunken Girlhood, and my new book, Fury, a Memoir. I wrote Smash when I was 23 years old, and it's a really personal story about my experiences as a teenage binge drinker. I wrote it for a couple of reasons. One was personal. One was a little bit more cultural. Personally, I was 23 and living in New York, and I just quit drinking. And I became really preoccupied with this old memory, something I hadn't thought about in a number of years but suddenly couldn't stop thinking about, which was this night that I'd had my stomach pumped when I was 16. Uh, So I sat down and wrote what became uh, a true story and later that chapter in my book. Uh, But culturally, during that time, I was hearing so much in the news about how girls of my generation were drinking so much younger and so much more than all the women who'd gone before us. And I didn't agree with what I was hearing from the experts. Um, All the sociologists and psychologists seemed to be suggesting that girls like me were drinking more because we were so self-confident and empowered and because we were bursting with girl power. And I thought that was a little bit nuts, um, seeing as so much of my drinking had been an expression of my unhappiness or my lack of confidence. So I set out to write a young person's perspective. Fury, on the other hand, I I didn't expect it to be a memoir. Um, I set off a few years after Smashed thinking I was going to write an objective book of essays exploring American attitudes about anger. What I was forced to recognize pretty early in the process was that I'd latched onto the topic because I had a whole lot of repressed anger of my own, and a lot of it went back to my childhood. So I wanted to read a little bit from the weekend of my wedding, um, which is when my, I see my parents for the first time since the most explosive fight we've ever had in our family history. I end up behaving a little bit like a bridezilla. Um, but my husband and I got married in France, um, and this is uh, the weekend that my parents first come to visit us there. As my wedding nears, I grow panicked to the point of distraction. It's not that I'm nervous about committing my life to Amen or planning our tiny picnic reception. I'm not even concerned about how I'm going to rally the translator or pick up the croquembouche from a patisserie. The baker can't speak English. I can't speak French. We'd had to establish a bumbling common ground in rudimentary Spanish. I'm terrified to see my parents for the first time since our fight. On the afternoon of their arrival, my father is sweating like a field hand. My mother is complaining of blisters. They're both ticked off that our apartment is so far from the closest metro station. Eamon and I hug them tentatively, already feeling as though we've done something wrong. Maybe we should have met them at the airport after all? For the remainder of the day, the tension is palpable. My mother unpacks a suitcase full of small gifts she's brought for me. She seems to thrust each one at me tersely, a preemptive look of hurt on her face, as though she's already decided that I don't like or appreciate them. The more I thank her, the more closed off she seems to get. Sure, she says stiffly in reply. Don't mention it. She perches on the edge of our sofa, with her arms crossed and her foot pumping at the end of her crossed legs. Later, when I ask her if something's wrong, if I've offended her in some way, she snaps back that she's fine. Not everything is about you, she adds. This last part makes Eamon laugh nervously. Her demeanor sets me on edge. It makes me despondent. 
It cocks me like a revolver. Things get worse the next day at my hen party. While Eamon spends his last days of so-called freedom, go-karting, boozing, and getting hazed by his brothers, I spend mine at a flea market with our mothers and my future sister-in-law, Rachel, who arrives that morning looking roundly and happily six months pregnant. When we stop for croque madames, the conversation naturally veers toward my sister. My future mother-in-law makes some innocuous remark about how it's a shame that my sister isn't there to join us. Rachel, who hasn't heard the story, asks why not. And my mother, losing her chatty air, grows visibly defensive. She puts a fist to her mouth. Her spine straightens against her chair. She gives a combative speech about how my sister is not outlandish in her reluctance to cross an ocean with an 11-month-old baby. At the end, she throws her paper napkin onto the table and announces at high volume, Now, if you don't mind, that is, if no one else has any other questions about my youngest daughter, I'd prefer to not talk any more about her not being here. The wind is gone from my sails. I want the rest of the day, no, the rest of the weekend, to be over as quickly as possible. I wish I could skip the ceremony and go straight to being married. I understand now why my sister eloped. I suddenly want to celebrate this rite with Eamon alone. How is it possible to feel protective of my mother, and at the same time deeply furious with her? Later in the subway, she corners me, while Rachel and my mother-in-law stand in line for metro tickets. What did you say to them? She asks me, her face flushed from the crowd in the heat of the day. What do you mean, what did I say to them? It's just the questions they were asking earlier. What did you tell them? Do they know about what happened before you left? I don't have time to ask her to elaborate. Rachel comes pushing her little belly through the turnstile and jaunts brightly toward us. They know, I say cryptically with narrowed eyes. I add cruelly, everybody knows. Eating ice cream cones later on Il San Louis, the conversation finally turns to the wedding, with everyone giving me marriage advice. My mother claims the itch didn't just happen on the seventh year, but also on the 14th, the 21st, the 28th, and so on. Rachel claims that the key to happily ever after is accepting that there will be times when Eamon and I will be closer than others. You have to trust your relationship enough to give each other space from time to time, she says. Like an accordion, you'll constantly be moving apart from one another and then coming back together. I recount the story of our engagement for Rachel because she's never heard it before. When I'm finished, she turns and asks my mother, Were you incredibly excited when you heard Eamon had proposed? My mother's face grows tight. She leans back on the stone wall where we're sitting above the Seine and dabs her mouth with her napkin. To be incredibly honest, I had my reservations, she says. I don't just interrupt, I combust. We're not talking about any of that this weekend, I shout, while I stare downward at my dusty, sandaled feet. Some shame still keeps me from making eye contact with her when I'm angry. I tell her it's my wedding, and I'd like that one demand met. When I look up, Rachel and my mother-in-law have both taken a sudden, embarrassed interest in the river beneath us. My mother's mouth is open, although she seems to be having a hard time finding the breath to form words. She's gone directly from looking like she's ready to storm Versailles to looking like she's going to cry. There, I've set a boundary, only I don't feel empowered. I feel horrifically guilty. Over dinner at the Pink Flamingo, a pizzeria where all the pies are named after inspirational hacks, I gaze at her over the black-and-white checkerboard table. I watch her pick over her slice of Basquiat and try to gauge how deeply she hates me. Saying goodbye to the rest of the hens, Mom and I take the metro home and then the bus from the Raymond Canoe station. 
You hate me, she sobs as we grope our way along the dark, rank streets toward my apartment. Beneath the light of the moon, bits of glass glimmer on the asphalt. From far off, probably the nearby Rue des Noisies, comes the pumping baritone of a car stereo. I take a deep, exasperated breath. I don't hate you, I say, meaning it. Fine, then. You're still mad at me. That's fine. Sometime down the line, you'll get over what happened the last time I saw you. You'll forgive me, and when that happens... I stop and turn to look at her. It's after midnight. I'm exhausted. Even though her voice has lost the shrill quality it's had all afternoon, she's still talking loud enough to wake the burly French neighbors. Look, Mom, I say. It's over, okay? It's fine. I forgive you. See? No, you don't. Listen to me. I forgive you for that night. If you're still angry with me, that feeling's yours. You own it. Don't go pinning it on me. I'm not lying. It's not the night of the fight that I want to punish her for. I really want her to apologize for the years of my childhood when I never had a mother who was available to me, at least not when I was angry, frightened, disappointed, flailing. While I'm at it, I want her to say that she's sorry for making me feel like little more than a hand mirror casting her reflection. I want her to know that I've spent my whole life the same way I spent my hen night, monitoring her moods, accepting responsibility for them, letting her dig slide, allowing the weight of her criticisms to slowly accumulate, until recently, when I managed to fly magnificently off the handle. I know these are a child's demands, but I'd never been able to acknowledge them as a kid. Helpfulness, compliance, competence, stoicism. These were the traits that always spared me from my mother's wrath when I was a girl. I know I talk about Riley too much, my mom wails, but she's all I have. You've been here. We've hardly spoken in months. As I stand in the street, looking into my mother's bewildered face and feeling my synapses fire wildly, it occurs to me that my worst fear, the worry that if I get angry, my mother will leave me, already happened 25 years ago. And whereas she used to hold me at a distance, I now hold her that way. She's trying to find a way to be meaningful to me, but she doesn't feel valued by me either. She doesn't really trust that I care about her, and the result has made her self-protective, even combative. The famed family therapist Virginia Satir believed all feelings, even fear, humiliation, anger, and helplessness, are the ready-made bases for our connection to all other human beings, and as long as I keep those emotions to myself— I'll never know my mother on equal footing, the very thing I had wanted in that long-ago dream. On the morning of my wedding, I wake to thunderclouds. No raindrops have yet hit the windows, but there's a sticky closeness to the atmosphere and a dusky gray fog hanging around. My parents wake up a little later, eager to help me. My father offers to go and pick up a dozen French baguettes for the reception. My mother helps me tie my grandmother's deco brooch into the bouquet that we make from two dozen bunches of plain white roses. There's still static between us, something left over from the night of my hen party. I'm guarded and clumsy around her. I brace for impact like I'm awaiting the next confrontation. It happens in the upstairs bedroom, which is lofted and connected to the kitchen by a precarious wooden ladder. I'm up there, fully dressed in the designer sample that I found at a charity bridal boutique in New York. Its chiffon is ripe for makeup stains, and its train is in a puddle behind me. I'm fiddling in the mirror, noticing the way my left eye is red and irritated from a stray speck of makeup, and I'm beginning to doubt the way I've decided to let my hair fall chaotically down my back. 
With my dad still out buying bread, my mom scales the ladder for company. Seeing me dress for the first time, she makes no comment at all. It's not the moment that you see in the movies, when the mother of the bride gasps approvingly. What, I say with exasperation, what's wrong? Does this not look okay? It's getting late. I don't have time to change anything. Nothing's wrong, she says. Everything looks fine, looks good. I grip my teeth. Look, I say a little too harsh. Can you not just stand there saying nothing? You're making me nervous. Fine, she trills, throwing up her hands. I'll leave. She turns with such fury that she twists an ankle, trips over the edge of her kitten-heeled shoe, and goes tumbling to the floor. A few more inches and she would have rolled headfirst down the top of the ladder and fallen the six feet to the kitchen. She screams. I scream. I'm irrationally furious. It's exactly like that time she smashed the crystal bowl and turned her hand into carpaccio. All my life, in the rare moments when I shouted or got angry with her, she immediately got sick or injured. What's wrong with you, I shout, while I take her arm and heave her up from the floor. Don't you know how to walk in heels? What are you doing? Why did you do that? I'm honestly expecting an answer. I don't know, she shouts. I slipped. I'm old. As though she were not 50, but 80. Everything's a mess. It's 10.15 a.m. Anique has arranged for a cab to pick us up and take us up the hill to the Mairie at 10.30 a.m. Eamon and I are getting married at 11, and my father, who left for the boulangerie over two hours ago, still hasn't come back with the bread. Where is he? I bark at my mother, who's standing by the kitchen sink with her arms crossed, giving me a subtle version of the silent treatment. In my head, I'm playing out various scenarios in which my father has been struck dead, crossing the Rue des Noisies, where there always seem to be gangsters flooring stolen cars, or 14-year-old boys on motorbikes, popping wheelies and hollering putain to every woman that they pass on the street. Every abandonment fear plays out in my head. My head is swirling like a mechanical meat separator, all these thoughts flying around like revolting bits of gizzard and entrails, when I suddenly hear a loud smacking sound. What was that noise? I ask aloud. My mother shrugs her shoulders. We check to make sure it wasn't the sound of my father knocking at the door. We nose around in the bedrooms to make sure a window hasn't blown open. We look in the bathroom to see if a bottle slipped off the countertop and shattered. Ten minutes later, when I've all but forgotten the noise, I discover what caused it. Instead of having a wedding cake, Eamon and I elected to buy a croquembouche, a tower of profiteroles that the French typically serve on special occasions such as weddings and baptisms. Like a traditional American wedding cake, it's topped with figurines of a miniature bride and groom. Unlike a traditional wedding cake, the whole thing is shellacked with gallons of caramelized sugar, which cements the whole soaring pyramid in place. We had no idea how to store this strange foreign confectionery until the afternoon of the wedding, so Eamon and I followed instructions we had found on the internet. We wrapped it loosely in tinfoil and left it out on the counter. Only we hadn't factored in the humidity. Even though it's the 1st of September, the weather is still muggy enough to have melted the caramelized sugar down to the thick consistency of honey. A landslide has occurred, causing the whole structure to sway, top-heavy, and break apart in the middle. This alone wouldn't be so ominously traumatic, but the cracking sound I heard earlier was the sound of the miniature bride's head snapping off at the neck. Where she once gazed adoringly at her husband, she now stands holding her bouquet against her virginal white dress, decapitated. If it's an omen, it's not subtle. I pinch the bride's bitty head between my index finger and thumb. 
I look into her black pinpoint eyes. My mother is not so cruel as to laugh openly. Biting her lips and trying not to smile, she asks, Maybe we can tape it back on? To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.